Amen. Good evening, Grace Chapel. Good to be with you all tonight and sing together with you. Um, if you'll open your Bibles this evening to the Proverbs, Proverbs 11, and as you turn there, I'll bow and look to the Lord in prayer once again. Father, thank you for the throne of grace. Thank you for our Savior who we have sung about this evening, who um, has paid a great price, has manifested a great love, and even now still uh, ever lives to intercede for us at your right hand. We're thankful for that reality. We praise you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your kindness. Lord, we ask now that you would give us um, food from your word, that you'd give us wisdom, that you'd give us of your spirit. And Lord, may we take what we receive tonight and by your grace apply it in our lives so that we can bring you glory. Pray that you'll minister to each one here tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So at Carrierville, I've done several Bible studies with our teenagers um, over the last several months from the Proverbs, and so my thoughts have been there um, a fair amount, and I want to go there tonight and just look at some of Proverbs 11. So we'll read Proverbs 11 and the first eight verses. Proverbs 11, starting in verse 1. A false balance is abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. When pride cometh, then cometh shame, but with the lowly is wisdom. The integrity of the upright shall guide them, but the perverseness of transgressors shall destroy them. Riches profit not in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivereth from death. The righteousness of the perfect shall direct his way, but the wicked shall fall by his own wickedness. The righteousness of the upright shall deliver them, but transgressors shall be taken in their own naughtiness. When a wicked man dieth, his expectation shall perish, and the hope of unjust men perisheth. The righteous is delivered out of trouble, and the wicked cometh in his stead. You know that many of the Proverbs were written from, not all of them, but many of them from, from Solomon to his son. It's one of the books of wisdom, of course. Um, there are um, Chinese Proverbs, short, pithy sayings. There's all kind of different Proverbs out there. But these Proverbs, this genre of literature um, that, that the Lord inspired in Scripture, and these words are, are the, very, is the very wisdom of God. Um, I'll let you in on a little secret. When I was young, I did not like the Proverbs. They were stale and dry and boring to me. And, uh, and they also told me how bad that I was. Um, and and they, they tend to do that. I really struggled. I just didn't really enjoy the Proverbs. And so if you are a challenge with that, then we can, we can be buddies. We can be recovering um, uh, Proverbs non-enjoyers, okay? Um, but this is essential. As we read any part of Scripture, um, I encourage you to never, ever, I think, I think this is what I did as a young person, never, ever again read the Proverbs without thinking about Jesus. Really, any passage of Scripture. But never, ever read the Proverbs without thinking about Jesus. You might say, well, that seems like a stretch because I don't think the name Jesus is mentioned in the Proverbs. And um, I think you're right if you say that. I don't think that his name is mentioned there either. But when we read all of Scripture, and Jesus himself, he told us some ways that we're supposed to read the Old Testament particularly. So just really quickly, you don't have to turn there. I'll just turn quickly to Luke 24. This is a foundational passage really for 
understanding the Bible, understanding the Old Testament. Jesus said these words after he was risen again to his disciples before he ascended in Luke 24, 44. He said to them, these are the words which I spake to you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Those were the three divisions that the Jews had. One way was a two-way division of the Old Testament. The one was a three-way. So it doesn't mention the Proverbs here, but they're included. All the scriptures, what he's saying, um, that all these things were written concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. Isn't that amazing? So Jesus is telling us that in some way, as we read the Old Testament, um, I've been here for some of Brother Isaac's Bible studies in the Psalms, the Psalm 110, other ones, beautifully done, of pointing us to their fulfillment um, in the Lord Jesus Christ. But also think about this. So, So in some way, so let me just stop there, in some way, we have to think about Jesus when we think about the Proverbs. One way is this, okay? One way is this. The Proverbs do expose our sins. So, I mean, you don't have to read very far at all. And if you're honest with the Scripture in yourself, you, you have some way exposed. And so if you're going to stand before God, you have to be forgiven and cleansed and covered. And so every time, believer, that you read the Proverbs and you see some way that you have failed, then you should be thanking Jesus for dying for, for the way that you violated Proverbs 11.1 1, or, or some other proverb. It, should, it really should draw our hearts in gratitude to Christ because the Proverbs do expose us. But also I want you to think about this, is that Jesus read the Proverbs. Jesus read the Proverbs. Jesus was a man of the book, wasn't he? Jesus read the Scriptures. He devoured the Scriptures, and he read these Proverbs. And not only did he read these Proverbs, but Jesus lived out these Proverbs. There's not a proverb that Jesus was guilty of violating. Isn't that wonderful? Not a one. And so uh, we, we know also that the Proverbs are all about wisdom. Well, who's the ultimate wise one? It's Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1.30 tells us that he is our wisdom. We are the fools, aren't we? By, by nature and often by practice. And God's saving his people. He's making us wise. But Christ is our perfect wisdom to stand before God. Isn't that wonderful? You remember the guy who wrote many of the Proverbs? We already mentioned his name. His name was Solomon. What do we know about Solomon? He was the, what we call him, the the wisest fellow around, right? And yet, what do we know about one of the, the men who, the man who wrote many of the Proverbs is that he did not even live up to his own wisdom. In some ways he did, but in many ways we know that he failed. There's one man, the, the greater Solomon, a greater than Solomon is here, as Jesus said. There's one man who lived up to the Proverbs. Isn't that wonderful? And if you are in Christ, Jesus is your righteousness. We'll talk about that some in a moment. So never read the Proverbs without, in some way, thinking about Jesus. But the Proverbs do give us practical wisdom for how to live. The Proverbs, in some ways, are an expounding of the law. So the law is given in uh, specific commands, and the Proverbs, in a lot of ways, are, are, are ways to kind of flesh that out of what will that look like to apply the will of God, the law of God, in our lives. So here we have one right here, the very first one here in Proverbs 11. A false balance is abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. So we don't shop that way these days, but in those days they would. You've seen the scales, right? You say you, you're going to go buy three pounds of rice from the merchant, and so there's over here, there's the, the weight that he would put on to measure out three pounds and make sure that how much rice he scooped into your bag is exactly right. Or he hopefully is not guilty of throwing a couple of pieces of charcoal in the, in the very bottom of the bag to make it three pounds, but it's not really three pounds full of rice. 
What is that doing? It's, it's, it's obvious. It's, it's, um, it's manipulation, and it's deceit, and it's defrauding, isn't it? So it's, I'm, I'm going I'm to take from you. I'm going to skimp a bit here and there. I'm going to take from you to enrich and to benefit myself. It's all about, and, and, and the Proverbs, uh, let me just stop. The Proverbs reveal our sinfulness to us because it gives us commands like this. If humanity was righteous by nature, we wouldn't need commands like this, would we? We would just be fair and honest and love each other and be completely out front and never cheat anybody. But the reality is, is that we, by nature, we have the, the violation, the sin that Proverbs 11.1 1 reveals. We have it in our hearts, don't we? And in the very core of our corrupt nature, we think stuff like this and do stuff like this. Hopefully, for believers, hopefully hardly ever or not much anymore, but maybe more than we think that we do. So it's... It's self-focused. It's, it's a living for self. I don't care who that I hurt or who that I defraud as long as I am enriched. And he says here, that's abomination to God. It stinks to God is what that means. It's repulsive to God. Because God is a God of honesty and righteousness and purity. And you also see the wisdom of God that he would give us this command. Because look at the consequences of this. Okay? Okay, kids, let me give you, kids, let me, let me grab your attention really quick. What if, if some of you get this for your birthday or for Christmas, what if someone gave you a $10 gift card to Chick-fil-A? Who's interested in that? I see some interested faces, okay? And let's say that you go down to Chick-fil-A and $10 won't get you a whole lot anymore, by the way. But let's say you go to Chick-fil-A and you say, I want a chicken sandwich and I want a peppermint milkshake. And they say, sir or ma'am, you have $7.50 on your card. You say, no, wait a second. No, 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 no. My mom bought this for me, and it says $10. And let's say that Chick-fil-A ripped you off $2.50. Now, how would you feel about Chick-fil-A? Would you ever go there again? Maybe, but maybe not. Would you, would you, would, would you have, um, if you go again, would you have doubts in your minds about their honesty? You would. What if everybody lived this way? What would be the consequences of everybody living this way where I don't know if I can trust. I mean, I, Roy told me I could buy his mower for 150 but I wonder if he took the blade off at night, you know, before that I bought it. And, and, then, I'm, and then I'm always looking at Roy. I'm not really sure about him. And then I, I get him back some way, and he's always looking at me. What kind of a society is that? And listen, some societies who are really, really, really far down the tubes are like that. And so it's everyone out for himself. All, you can't trust anyone. Do you see the goodness and the wisdom of God to teach us don't live that way? Because it's, it's, it's not only for his glory, but it's also the, for the flourishing of community and, and of society, isn't it? The goodness, the wisdom of God to give us commands like this. Now, some of you say, I, well, I've never done stuff like that. In fact, I don't even shop with weights and balances. Well, let's, let's, let's put it down to our level. Let's get it down to our heart, okay? How many of you have had this scenario? There's one piece of pizza left, okay? And there's two people who are still hungry. And so mom and dad say, all right, Johnny, I want you to half it. You half it, and you all take it. You know where I'm going, right? Think in your own mind. If you were the one doing the halving, have you ever, perhaps, skimped just a little bit? And it was really 51.5% on your slice of the piece, and that's the one that you took. Or, or it was sli- sliced, and man, we're doing measurements, and we're all about who gets the bigger one. Why is that? Because it's all about me, isn't it? And the most important thing in my mind right now when I do that is me putting some more stuff in my stomach, right? You see, this reveals our hearts, hearts that by nature are corrupt and wretched and sinful. 
cheating on taxes, right? Or, or other little cutting the corners that we can laugh about the pizza, but maybe that we as adults do um, in, in ways that, that it's, it's, they won't miss it. It's a little bit more for me, but God sees it, doesn't he? God sees it, and it's abomination to him because it's so contrary to his perfect nature. Now, why would we be tempted to do things like that? Greed, obviously. So in that moment, we're finding our fulfillment. We're finding our ultimate joy in what I can have right now and enriching myself. But you know, a lot of people in very poor societies would be tempted to this way too, wouldn't they? Imagine you're very, very poor, and every dollar counts and goes a long, long way. You would be tempted to skimp. So where's the test of the heart? Can I trust God, right? We sing the hymn, Trust and Obey. All right, so Lord, I'm going to obey you. I'm not going to skimp here. I'm going to be honest and fair. I don't know how I'm going to pay the next thing, but I've got to trust you. So it all goes back to our hearts. So this, this, this right here, Proverbs 11, when you think through it, this reveals to me my need of grace. Lord, I need a whole lot of grace that I would love you more, that I would trust you more, that I would love others and not live with this heart that's just consumed with self. And then again, as we mentioned earlier, think about how that Jesus, every time that we violated Proverbs 11, 1, Every time that, that, that the people of God have, brought, have violated Proverbs 11 and 1, that Jesus paid for that sin. I was just thinking about that as we sang that hymn, The Triumphal Feast. The pound knows that hymn that Jesus is, as it were, speaking to us in his love. I paid for every one of those. All the Proverbs 11 1, 11, 1 violations. But also think about Jesus in this way. Proverbs 11 1 gives us a little bit of insight of what it was like to live around Jesus when he was here on earth. Can you imagine anyone more honest, anyone, anyone more trustworthy? If you did business with Jesus, you always knew it would be fair. You always knew it would be honest. Isn't that wonderful? That's our Savior. That's the way that he lived when he was here on earth. He never violated, but he kept Proverbs 11.1. 1. Look at verse 2. When pride cometh, then cometh shame. But with the lowly, the humble, is wisdom. So we all, we all know, you've heard enough sermons to know that, that pride is like public enemy number one, right? That there's, there's pride is the root of so many sins and that the Lord is a, a, opposed. He puts himself in battle, as it were, against the proud, as James 4 says. Um, and there's so much said about the Proverbs. The Proverbs are the root, I'm sorry, the pride is the root that produces many other sins. Only by pride comes contention and, uh, you know, so many things like that. And it associates here lowliness or humility with wisdom. It associates humility with wisdom. So there's things that we have to know to help us to walk in humility. Let me just give you a couple as an example. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. The church at Corinth um, was a church that was, was an incredibly gifted church. But they were an incredibly immature church. And one of the reasons was, was their pride. It was their pride. You remember that. They, were, they had many, many spiritual gifts. And, um, and, many, and that was a, a source uh, of, of pride for many of them. So look in verse, um, I'm sorry, verse 7. 1 Corinthians 4 in verse 7. He's addressing this ish, issue of pride. He, the latter part of verse 6, he says that, um, all this is written that none of you be puffed up for one against another. So there's this struggle of them being puffed up one against the other. Verse 7, here's, here's the, the, the reason why. For who maketh thee to differ from another? Paul's wanting them to think. 
Who makes you different from someone else? So maybe you have the, to the brother of the Corinthian church, you have the gift of tongues. To the sister, you don't. You have the gift of wisdom. You have the gift of this. Who made you to differ from one another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now, if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? Now, you can apply that not only to the spiritual gifts, but to many, 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 many ways. Let's just say you're, you're proud of your height. I don't know if anybody here is, but let's just say that you are. Well, who made you to differ from the short guy? Was it you? He's like, I'm just going to think hard enough. Think tall thoughts, you know, and I'll get tall. I'll stretch a lot. That's, we all know that's silly. Let, let's say someone is naturally just a whiz at math. I'm not. But some people, they have more of an acumen towards that. Well, you, hopefully you worked hard, and you better have worked hard and used it. But who made you to differ? Who, some people are more naturally artistic and just have, they can do things with a pen and paper and drawings that blow the rest of us away. And hopefully they grew by practice and, 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 and maybe taking lessons and all that. But at the end of the day, there's something there that you were given that made you differ from somebody else that you received, right? You didn't earn, you received it. God gave it to you. And we can do the same to spiritual gifts or to other things. Even things that you've grown in. Say that, say that you have obtained great knowledge in the scriptures, but you still have to say you received that because it's God who gave you the opportunity, the time, the mind, the illumination of the spirit, and all the rest. And so the humble have wisdom. The humble recognizing, wait a second, I can't boast in this because it's a gift of God to me. It was given to me. So I can't boast over another because I can jump higher than they can because God just gave me that. We could apply this in, 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 in many ways. So we could apply it in the area of, of, um, of confession or in the area of when there's contention. So the humble know, I've got to confess my sin. I've got to acknowledge my wrongs. Pride is blinding, isn't it? it, 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 it it's, um, we can't see straight. We can't see clearly. Humility helps us to see clearly that confession is really the path to healing. We heard messages about that this week in, in the men's conference. The covering it up is, is, the, is really the path to destruction. Or if there's contention where one is unwilling, just simply unwilling to see the side of another. Or one says, I'm just going to, they know, no better, I'm just going to dig my heels in and not lose, not give an inch, not give ground. But, the, but the, the humble say, wait a second, I know better than that. I know, even though I think I'm right on this, here's what you have to say if there's some measure of humility. There's a possibility I could be wrong, so I'm willing to consider what you have to say. That's humility. We can apply this in so many ways. Here's, here's a very important way. Humility and understanding, <laughs> and understanding salvation. So I, I'm preaching through the Gospel of Luke at Collierville, and we, we recently have uh, looked at the parable of the, of the, of the um, excuse me, there's so many P's, the prodigal, the publican, the, the Pharisee, another P, the Pharisee, and the publican, the tax collector. And what's the difference? What's the difference? Jesus at the end of that parable said, he that exalts himself will be abased. He that humbles himself will be exalted. What was the difference? Well, the, the Pharisee came before God in the parable with his resume. He came with his resume. He said, God, I've got this, and I've got this, and I don't have that and that. I've got these positives, I don't have these negatives. And listen, he was really 
clueless and spiritually bankrupt as that whole section, even beyond that parable, I won't preach that to you tonight, but as it bears out. And what is the, what is the image of the public of the tax collector? He says, God be merciful to me, the sinner. And that expression merciful is not the common one used in the Gospels, like take pity, take compassion. It's the idea of, I kid you not, it's beautiful, be propitious. Remember propitiation, the sacrifice. So in the parable, it's if he's saying, I need what you have. God, I need what you provide. I'm not, he was not bringing his resume. See, with the humble is, is wisdom. With the humble, they recognize nothing in my hands I bring. I'm not bringing my resume. Simply to thy cross I cling. So with pride cometh shame, and with the lowly is wisdom. Let's think about Jesus. Let's think about Jesus in Proverbs 11 too. Humility. Well, Jesus had no sins to confess, so he wasn't, didn't have to manifest humility in that way. But do you know what one of Jesus' great titles was? Isaiah bears it out several places. The Gospels, Jesus calls himself this. You know what one of his great titles is? A servant. A servant. A servant by voluntary decision. A servant by voluntary choice. So Jesus himself, when he was teaching his disciples, hey, greatness in my kingdom looks like serving. You remember those passages? Numerous passages. Greatness in my kingdom looks like serving Matthew 20, 28, even as the Son of Man, Jesus referring to himself, came not to be ministered unto, but to minister to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He said, I came down not to do my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. And you see Jesus' service, where in his service involves the cross, as we've talked about, taking on shame, taking on guilt. And so Christ humbles himself. He humbles himself. Now, that just doesn't seem to fit, does it? And it doesn't fit in so many ways. For the king to humble himself, the king to serve. Now, if anybody deserved to have the spotlight placed upon them in a self-serving way, it was Jesus, wasn't it? But that's the opposite of what he did. He never used his rank or his position or any of that just for some flamboyant, non-worthwhile purpose, if we can say that way. Isaiah 42 says he, did, he will not cry or lift up his voice in the streets. In other words, he's not just making some kind of a gratuitous, wrong kind of self-centered show, though he did reveal his glory. Jesus was a servant, so we see him serving. Think about this way that Jesus served. This is amazing. Galatians 4 says that, that he was made under the law. Jesus was made under the law. What that means is, is that as a man, as a human being, Jesus was placed under the obligations of God's holy law to keep and to obey. Now, sometimes, you know, kids would probably like to say to parents, don't do this, kids, but you probably say, hey, keep your own rules, you know. And probably it fits sometimes, you know, we're all hip, we all have some hypocrisy with us, don't we? Well, listen, the Lord of glory set the law, didn't he? It's his law. And as a man, Jesus obligated himself to place himself in in humility and obedience under that law to keep it for the salvation of his people. So motivation, example, strength for, for humility, it's found, you have to think about Jesus. Never forget that with the lowly is wisdom, our pride will blind us. 
Our pride will blind us. But the more that we walk in humility, the wiser that we are. The wiser that we are. I won't, I won't go to all of these in depth. Look in, look in verse 3. I'll read 3 to 6 here and use these as kind of a grouping. The integrity of the upright shall guide them, but the perverseness of transgressors shall destroy them. Riches profit not in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivereth from death. The righteousness of the perfect shall direct his way, but the wicked shall fall by his own wickedness. The righteousness of the upright shall deliver them, but transgressors shall be taken in their own naughtiness. All right, so you see this in the Proverbs a lot. Terms like the righteous and the wicked, and maybe you're not really sure how to handle it. You're like, well, some days I'm more wicked than righteous, it seems. So who am I? Well, let's think about this. Let's think about this in terms of just the whole big picture of the Bible. Look at it through the lens of the gospel. And let's just look at verse 4 to use it that way, first of all. So riches don't profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Righteousness delivers from death. Well, if you read the whole law, what does the law tell us? Like if you read the law enough, will it tell you that you're righteous? No, the law will tell you that you're sinful. So all, remember the law, it's all, all eventually pointing us to Christ, the only righteous one who gives his righteousness to unworthy sinners. Well, let's think about riches. Why are riches attractive? Many reasons, right? One thing is, is that if you have enough money in this world, you can get yourself out of a lot of trouble. It's just a sad fact of life. If you're if you have a bad car and it goes in the blink, you get yourself out of the trouble of transportation to go buy a new car. Um, if you have great needs for, for medical help and you have enough wealth, it can, it can, um, it can you know, humanly speaking, it can get you out of some trouble. So Jesus said in, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, in fact, he said it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom, hard for him to be saved. Lord, who can be saved then? And you know why? You know, one answer is total depravity, but let's, let's un- flesh out total depravity a little more, is because riches, if you have enough wealth, one of the common human responses, fallen human responses, is to place one's trust and ultimate confidence in that wealth. But guess, guess what's one thing that riches cannot buy anybody's way out of? The day of wrath. The day of wrath. What's that talking about? The day of judgment. The day where God's wrath is poured out. On that day, can you imagine if, if someone has been wealthy and they've just gotten themselves out of jam after jam after jam with their wealth? Say, well, all right, how much is in the bank? Let me try to buy God off. And that currency doesn't work with God, does it? Riches don't profit in the day of wrath. And also this is telling us, Proverbs is telling us, it's not a morally neutral world we're living in. It's God's world, isn't it? And he's the righteous judge. He's the righteous judge. And so so this is telling us that even if wickedness seems to flourish for a while, there's a day of wrath coming. It's really, really important to know the way of escape, isn't it? Riches don't work. Common way of solving problems. Here's the positive, but righteousness delivereth from death. Riches will not help in that day of wrath, but you know what will help? Righteousness. Righteousness. And that's what should cause us to look to Christ, isn't it? To look to Christ. Brother Nathan's doing 1 Thessalonians, and probably if he keeps on with that, you'll, you'll see in the latter part of 1 Thessalonians 1, it speaks of a Jesus who delivered us, his people, from the wrath to come.
So, oh, the Proverbs 11.4 should make us love Jesus and treasure Him. As we see our own sin to flee to Him, to run to Him, rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in Thee. And Jesus has the perfect righteousness of the one who never violated a proverb or any other part of the law, but kept it perfectly for sinners like you and for like me. So that's, you know, imputed righteousness, positional righteousness, but there's also this practical living out that if you're in Christ, God's training you for godliness. Titus 2, other passages. God saves and forgives, and God cleanses in the practical way, and God leads in paths of righteousness, and God produces righteous ways of thinking, doing, living, and speaking in His people. Look at the value of that in this grouping of verses. So look at three. The integrity of the upright shall guide them, but the perverseness of transgressors shall destroy them. Verse 5, the righteousness of the perfect shall direct his way, but the wicked shall fall by his own wickedness. 6, the righteousness of the upright shall deliver them, but transgressors shall be taken in their own naughtiness. What these verses intend to show us, at least to some degree, is the incredible value of godliness. The incredible value of godliness. The integrity of the upright. So this is, again, this is what God's grace produces in his people. This this godliness, this Godward way of thinking, living, and doing. It guides us. It directs the way. It delivers. One way to say it is it provides stability for the soul, doesn't it? Provides stability for the soul. I think about Jesus. I think about how this applied. How, how would this look in Jesus' life here on earth? Well, his integrity guided him. Jesus was locked in on his mission, wasn't he? As a 12-year-old boy, he's in the temple saying to Joseph and Mary, don't you know I must be about my, master's, my father's business? He's locked in. His integrity, his godliness, his righteousness, it guided his way. It kept him in the path that the Lord set for him. And as you and I pursue a life of God, as we pursue a life of following after Christ, it'll guide our way. It'll direct our way. It will deliver us in so many ways. Do you want to pursue godliness? Does that look attractive to you? 1 Timothy chapter 4 tells us this. I'll just read this passage briefly. 1 Timothy 4, where Paul's exhorting the young preacher to godliness, and he says... Um, In verse 7, he says, But refuse profane and old wives' fables, and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. Some of you have read that book, The Disciplines of the Christian Life, based on this verse. Discipline yourself for godliness. Then look at what verse 8 says. For bodily exercise profits little for a little time, but godliness is profitable to all things, having promise of the life that now is, and of that which is to come. There's a, a profit and a benefit of godliness in this life and in the world to come. Living in this eternal perspective. Timothy, discipline yourself to godliness. It has a long-term benefit and profit. Now look back in Proverbs 11. Look at the, look at the, the, the opposite. All right, so one way that God leads us in paths of righteousness is by showing us the beauty, the value, the worth, the profit of the godly way. And one way that God leads us in paths of righteousness is showing us the folly and the danger of the evil way. Okay? The warning. Look at what it says. I'll just read the last half of 3, 5, and 6. 
The perverseness of transgressors shall destroy them. Okay, perverse, you don't use that word much. It's the crookedness, the crooked way, going out of God's way. It will destroy them. It will destroy them. A life gone on in sin, unrepentant sin, will ultimately bring destruction. Verse 5, the latter part, the wicked shall fall by his own wickedness. Let me ask you a question. Those who set out in the way of wickedness, do you think they plan to fall by their own wickedness? Do you think they say, man, I want to go destroy myself. I want to go just make a mess of everything. No, it looks attractive, doesn't it? It looks attractive. It looks like the way to go. In Proverbs 9... That you have the personification of the foolish woman and the wise woman. The wise woman's calling out, picture of the gospel. The, the, uh, the foolish woman's also calling out. Come in. She calls out to the easily deceived. Come in. Stolen waters are sweet. Bread eat, eaten in secret is pleasant. There's an attraction here. But he knoweth not, the guy that goes in, he knoweth not that the dead are there and that her guests are in the depths of hell. So when foolishness calls out and wickedness calls out and says, Hey, come over here. Here's where the dead people are. Here's the way to hell. Is that how wickedness advertises and promotes itself? Absolutely not. It puts this attraction on it. But the wicked will fall by their own wickedness. Finally, verse, the latter part of verse 6, Transgressors shall be taken or caught or trapped in their own naughtiness. The word naughtiness there is like this. It's the idea of someone with covetous desire, just rushing in, just rushing in. It looks like the way to go. But the wickedness are taken, trapped, caught in their own covetous desire, just rushing in. Isn't, listen, isn't God kind and good to give us an accurate view of things? Isn't God good and kind to give us an accurate view of things? And he does it right here in Proverbs 11, leading us towards wisdom. All right, a couple more. Seven and eight really kind of go together as well. When a wicked man dieth, his expectation shall perish, and the hope of unjust men perisheth. The righteous is delivered out of trouble, and the wicked cometh in his stead. Pretty sobering, isn't it? (laughs) When a wicked person dies, Jesus said in John 8, if you believe not that I am he, you shall die in your sins. Isn't that, a, isn't that just a heavy expression? <laughs> wow. When the wicked die, their expectation is gone. And, when the, un, and, and the, un, the hope of the unjust men perisheth. You know what that tells me? Is that the wicked can deceive themselves for a long, long time. Like they can still, there's conscience there, Romans 2, right? They know the judgment of God. And so, but yet, they're still... False hopes that the wicked can have. Well, we're all going to the better place, right? It'll be a positive afterlife. I think I've paid enough penance here at the end. Or I'm not as bad as the next guy. Or you, know, you roll a dice and hopefully it'll all work out. Or you know, I don't know. But, but see, God just tells it like it is in Proverbs, doesn't he? He says, look, the, the hope of the unjust shall perish. Well, what's the reverse of that? What's the reverse of that? There was a righteous man who died, who was given the wickedness of others. His name is Jesus. And you know what his death produces? Not a perished hope. Not a false expectation. 
But the death of the righteous man, Jesus, who took on the wickedness of sinners like you and like me, guess what? His death was followed by what? By resurrection. And because of the resurrection of Christ, the hope of the just will never perish. The hope of the just is sure, as Brother Isaac preached at Ripley, the hope of the just is the anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. Isn't that wonderful? Verse 8 goes along with this. The righteous is delivered out of trouble, and the wicked cometh in his stead. Now you might look at that, you've got to be careful how you read the Proverbs. You say, well, I'm not sure if that's true, because I see a lot of righteous people who have lots of trouble, and a lot of wicked people who don't seem to have any trouble, like Psalm 73 that Brother Nathan preached a couple of Sunday nights ago. Well, see, the Proverbs give us also the big picture perspective. And the Proverbs also are pointing us to the ideal, okay? The Proverbs are pointing us to the ideal, especially in verses like this. Now, there are times, let's think about the case of Daniel in the lion's den. What happened? He was delivered out of trouble, and the wicked came in his stead, (laughs) literally. The guys that were accusing him, they got chunked to the lions, and Daniel was delivered. But you also find times, don't you, where... Ahab seems to get away with it for a time, doesn't he? I mean, poor old um, Naboth loses his vineyard to fraud and to murder. And for a while at least, Ahab, trouble doesn't follow him. Or Stephen, we, we sang about the martyrs in one of the hymns. Stephen is stoned to death, and it doesn't seem like there's immediate judgment. Where is the deliverance, Lord? John the Baptist. Where's, where's, the, where's the 11th hour angel swooping in and bailing John the Baptist out? He, he gets his head, he gets decapitated. He, he, he is martyred. But brothers and sisters, there, is, there, there are times where this is played out, and we can see it in real time, where God does sometimes deliver the righteous from some certain trouble, and the wicked get it instead. But ultimately, this is fulfilled in the ideal. In the ideal. And it's coming, brothers and sisters, it's coming. When the righteous, the people of God, will be delivered out of every trouble. And all the trouble, and I say this with sobriety, all the trouble will be laid on the head of those outside of Christ. Isn't that something? Because God will deliver. God will deliver His own. He'll rescue His bride from every bit of trouble, from every bit of of, of sin and the curse of sin that follows this wicked world. And all the wicked, all the enemies of Christ will be crushed. And their troubles will be eternal. And Christ will be vindicated. And God's judgment will be vindicated and honored. So this proverb, what does it do? It gives us hope, doesn't it? It gives us a picture of the ideal. So as we close, let's think about this. Let's think about this. We learn from the Proverbs. We learn our own sinfulness, don't we? You can't read far without getting convicted if you're uh, minded hard or at least working on 50%. You can't go far and get exposed. What should that do? That should bring us to Jesus in gratitude again. But it also should, 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 should um, give us some insight into our Savior and how that He lived. <laughs> the most honest man you could do business with. The most humble one. The most humble one. The one whose righteousness directed His way. And it should point us to the great, great salvation we have in Christ and then show us the value of godliness. And to pursue honesty, to pursue humility, to pursue avoiding that which would trap us, 
right? These rushing, covetous desires. But rather to walk in the way that is stable and upright and right and brings glory and honor and praise to the Lord. May God bless us to grow in wisdom as we look at Christ and look at the all-wise one. God bless you.